morning. Our scripture reading is from the letter of Philemon. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers, because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in, um, in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement, because you, brother, have refreshed the heart of the Lord's people. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man and now a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel, but I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you would do would not seem forced but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one thing more, prepare a guest room for me, because I hope to be restored to you in answer, your, in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is God's word for us today. Good morning, friends. Uh, my name is John. I'm the pastor here at Wingfoot. And uh, I want you to know if you're new with us, and uh, particularly if you're here and uh, maybe you're not sure where you stand with church or Christianity, uh, that you're actually why we started this church. Uh, the purpose of going to all the trouble to start a church like this is not just to kind of create a new Christian club in Goodyear Heights, uh, but to really provide a space where it's okay to ask big questions. And big, really challenging questions about life, because there's a lot of big questions to ask, a lot of hard things to wrestle with. And so as a community, I want you to know we're not afraid to ask really big questions. And one of the questions that we have been asking and wrestling with through this series that we're calling This Changes Everything is this question, what good is Christianity anyways? What good is Christianity anyways? Because if you ask someone who's not a Christian, uh, they might view Christianity not as a solution to the world's problems, but actually as a contributor to the world's problems. Now, Christianity sort of seems like it creates some divisiveness or creates a little bit of division, or, or you knew someone who became a Christian and kind of created uh, just some awkwardness in your relationship. And so the reality is a lot of people view Christianity more as a problem than a solution. And so we are leaning headfirst into that difficult question to say, what good is Christianity? 
How does it uh, help us? How does it provide some solutions to the big pressing issues that our world faces? And we're doing that through the context of the letter that Katie just read, the letter to Philemon. Uh, this letter that has to do with two people at very different places in life, very different positions in life, uh, coming together and finding reconciliation. Now, reconciliation is a really big word, uh, but what that simply means is that two opposing parties, two parties who are at conflict, they work through the conflict to find community, to find togetherness and unity again. And so the letter of Philemon is all about uh, finding reconciliation and unity in the midst of divisiveness. And so this morning, we're going to particularly talk about uh, how Christianity gives us the tools and how this letter gives us the tools to deal with the divisiveness and uh, the difficulty in our world. Uh, and so if you're here and you have big questions, or even if you think that Christianity is more of a problem than a solution, I hope that you'll see that in this letter is the tools that we need uh, to experience this kind of transformation. And so this series that we've called This Changes Everything, we're looking at four radical transformations that we have to embrace in order to become this kind of community. Last week, we talked about the transformation from being me-centered to we-centered. And this word that Paul used, koinonia, means that we belong to each other. It's not just that we sit next to each other, but that we actually belong to each other. And so it's our responsibility to share ourselves with each other. Uh, today, the transformation that we're going to talk about is the transformation from categories to community. From categories to community. And so what I mean by categories is this. Uh, it's very easy, it comes very naturally for us to put people in categories, right? It just kind of comes naturally. You see something about someone or you learn something about someone and you put them in categories, right? Today, there are two categories. There are Chiefs fans and Buccaneers fans, uh, or maybe three categories, Browns fans, right? and we're just kind of lamenting, right? Uh, there are categories that we put people in that don't really matter that much. Uh, you might be of the category of people who watch the game for the sports or the larger category that watches the game for the commercials, Right. Categories are all around us. It comes sort of naturally to us. And the reality is a lot of times categories are harmless. Uh, we actually learn categories as part of our natural development. I mean, if you think about it, when you were uh, still in your mother's womb, in some sense, you were kind of one category with her. But as soon as you're born, there becomes two categories, you and your mom. And over the course of your development as a kid, you learn these categories. These categories are actually helpful, and they help you make sense of the world. So you learn the category of brother and father and sister and teacher and friend and stranger. And these categories are actually helpful. They help you know where you end and someone else begins. It's because of categories that we learn how to empathize with people, that we learn how to share with people. And it's actually a healthy thing that we do. But the problem is that what happens in our world is that these categories take on greater meaning. They take on greater significance. And because of the world that we live in, the systems that we participate in, the categories that describe us become categories that define us. The categories that describe us often become categories that define us. And when a category moves from describing you to defining you, it makes it very easy to define someone's worth based entirely on that category. Based entirely on that one category, you learn everything there is to know about that person. You assume everything about that person based on that one thing about them. And the world and the system that we live in perpetuates this all around us. And so when these categories that describe us become categories that define us, it becomes very easy for us to undervalue and overlook people. The world that we live in does this in three significant ways. Politics, economics, and race. 
I mean, we just went through an intense political season, right? We're still, you could say, in the middle of that political season. And one of the things that I did kind of in October and November, I sort of just kind of, kind of drove around the neighborhood just trying to get a political temperature of the neighborhood. And it seemed like lots of people were flying signs or flags, right? I guess flags are the new, like, political thing, not a yard sign, but a flag. Lots of people were doing this. And you could kind of sense, like, who people were and what they were doing and what they believed based on that. I drove past the duplex that had a Biden sign and a Trump sign on each side of the duplex. And I just kind of wondered for a moment what it was like to share a wall and a driveway with each other. Because in the political season that we are in, that we're still in, as soon as you know something about how someone is feeling about a candidate or about voting, it becomes very easy to make that the defining thing about them. And to sort of say, well, I'm going to lump you in this category and, and I'm going to unfollow you then. Or I'm going to care less about your humanity and I only see you through the lens of the defining category of who you're voting for. I mean, probably a lot of us were either on social media or in conversations, maybe there was a friend or a family member who said something that kind of surprised you about the political moment. And it kind of became easier for you to sort of ignore them or kind of push them to the side. See, the politics of our day make us into defining categories. To say, well, you voted for him, so everything that I need to know about you is summed up in that thing. And so I'm going to ignore you, unfollow you, push you to the side. It became a definition. We do this in our world in the categories of economics. That our whole economic system is really built on uh, consumerism. Which says that uh, where you belong and how you are defined is based on how much stuff you have. And that the stuff that you have actually uh, defines who you are and your worth in our system. And so if you buy certain brands or you have a certain kind of phone or a certain kind of car, that becomes part of the definition of your worth, that you belong into this category of people. That because you own this stuff or you have enough of this, that this is now what your worth is. And the way that this works in our system is that these economic definitions become lenses. That then when we look up at those who have more or down at those who have less, it becomes the defining categories that we assess their value. You know that this happens because when you look down at someone who has less material stuff than you, you tend to think, why aren't they quite where I am? Why, why aren't they working as hard as I am? Or why are they so dependent on the system? If they just worked a little bit harder, then maybe they could get where I am. And, and so this label, this definition, tends to uh, sum up for us everything about who they are. This happens when we look up at those who have more than us. We think, well, why do you have more than me? What if you, maybe you should just be a little bit more generous. Maybe you shouldn't hoard all of your resources. And you notice when we do this, we place ourselves in the definition of people who are always right and who are always doing things as we should. And we look down and say, you're, you're doing it wrong. We look up and say, you're doing it wrong. But we're in the category of people who are doing it right. Most egregiously, this happens in our context in the reality of race. That race has become a category that defines somebody's worth. You know, race is not something that is invented by God. It's invented by humans. Where we took this category that described you, the color of your skin, and we assigned a whole host of meaning and worth to it. And now it's become a defining thing that shapes almost everything about who you are and your life. In the history of our country, we've said that white is a whole person and black and brown is three-fifths of a person. And even in the history of the church in our country, it's actually been taught from pulpits and from churches that there are multiple images of God. That to be white is to be closest to the true image of God, but
but to be brown or black is to be a lesser form of the image of God. The church is actually bought into these categories that define your worth based on one aspect of something that describes you and said, therefore, now we know everything that there is to know about you. And these categories that define us become uh, things that shape our imagination and our attitudes and our, our unconscious actions towards people. Because this category that describes us in the system in the world that we live in becomes a category that defines us. It makes it incredibly easy to undervalue, to overlook, to discriminate, and to ignore. This is the world that we live in. And it becomes really easy to participate in this and to experience this and not even be aware of it. You see, economics and race get mixed up in our world, and they've shaped our communities. They've shaped our neighborhoods through historic practices like redlining, where our communities are now divided based on race and economics, and we don't even realize it. Or even in the history of the church, if you go back 100 years, churches were actually built and structured these definition differences, where you had entrances for black people and entrances for white people, and balconies for black people and main floors for white people. It's actually built into the structure of the church, this definition difference. More recently, it's a little bit not so explicit. It's more kind of built in. And so recently, there's been conversations about how do you start a church and how do you grow a church? And the focus has been on you focus on one particular group. And so if you want to grow a really big, healthy church, you focus on just young white families or just young black families or just young professionals. And you focus on that group and you don't worry about the rest of the diversity of the neighborhood. And so the reality is that 60 years since Martin Luther King Jr., lamented the fact that Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America. That fact is still true today because we have bought into the system that defines people's worth based on something that simply describes them. Now, I say all this because this is our context. This is the world in which we live. This is the social ladder in which we operate. And in the day of Philemon and Onesimus, there was a similar social ladder. There was a similar social structure. And the reality is that Philemon and Onesimus could not have been further apart in any of these categories. You see, in that day and age, Philemon probably would have been what we would consider upper class. We know that because Paul says that there's a church that meets in his house. And so there was a large enough space for people to meet, to gather there. It was kind of a prominent place. You went there and you gathered with lots of people. But we also know that Philemon at some point owned Onesimus, that he had purchased this slave, which tells us that he had enough land, enough property, and he needed help managing it. And so he purchases Onesimus and brings him to serve in his household, which tells us that Philemon is pretty up towards the top of the social ladder. And that social day and age, you didn't climb the social ladder, it defined uh, who you were and where you fit. And so Philemon was probably just one rung down from the very top, the true political elites who had the advantage. And that's Philemon. Onesimus, on the other hand, Paul describes him as a bondservant. A bondservant was literally the bottom of the ladder. You couldn't get any lower than a bondservant. You had no rights as a bondservant. Probably 30 to 50 percent of the population of that day were bondservants, so it was a huge group of people. You probably became a bondservant as a result of war, and so Onesimus is probably not only a slave, he's also a foreigner. He was uh, captured in a conflict and brought into this city and then sold to Philemon. And so he is also a foreigner. In that day and age, it was taught, it was told that your role as a bondservant, your worth as a bondservant is wrapped up entirely in how useful you can be to your owner. 
that it was actually part of your natural role, your defined natural role, that you serve him. And that as long as you do that, you are fulfilling your destiny, your purpose in the world. Which, interestingly enough, is very similar to the message that was told to black Americans and black enslaved people, that your role in God's plan is to serve white people. And it was actually baptized in Christian language. And so very similar to what Onesimus experiences has been the experience of enslaved people here, even in our country. That this thing that describes you became this thing that defines you. And I say all this because I want you to see that the Bible has something to say to our day and age, to the divisiveness of our world. That Philemon and Onesimus could not have been more opposite in terms of the, the political, the social, the economic spectrum that they belonged in. And I want you to see what Paul asks Philemon to do. And so Paul makes this ask, this request of Philemon. He sends Onesimus to Philemon with this letter, making this request. I want you to see what he asks. If you have a Bible, it's going to be in verses 15 and 16, that Paul makes this request of Philemon. He asks Philemon to do the heavy lifting in this relationship in order to experience what Paul wants them to experience. He says this, For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother. Paul is asking Philemon to look into the eyes of Onesimus, because Onesimus carried this letter to Philemon, so Onesimus is probably standing right there in front of Philemon. Paul is asking Philemon to look into the eyes of Onesimus and to challenge the categories, challenge the definitions that he had grown up hearing about who Onesimus was, challenge the definitions about Onesimus' worth, his value, where he fit in his understanding of the world. He's asking Philemon to challenge that and look into the eyes of Onesimus and see not a slave, but a brother. Notice he doesn't say you're his father and he's your son. He says you're a brother, which is an equal. When you look into the eyes of Onesimus, I want you to see an equal. Someone who is made in God's image with worth, value, and dignity. Someone who, just like you, needed Jesus and found Jesus through Paul. That he is your equal, Philemon, and so you, therefore, need to treat him as such, and challenge the categories that defined his worth in your eyes. But Paul goes even a little bit further than that. He's asking Philemon to see in Onesimus an equal, but I want you to see how Paul does this, what Paul says to Philemon that even pushes this argument even further. In verse 1, Paul says this. He says, I am Paul. He introduces himself, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. You know, in every letter that Paul writes in the New Testament, and there are a lot of them, in every letter that Paul writes, he always introduces himself as Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. The only time he introduces himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus is in this letter. Because what he is saying is Onesimus, Onesimus the prisoner, Onesimus the one who's at the bottom, he's saying, Philemon, I want you to understand I identify with him. That I am choosing to side with him. I am choosing to identify with Onesimus. And if you were a prisoner, you had no rights. A prisoner, you were at the bottom of the ladder. And so he is saying, I am Paul, not the apostle, not the one with power or authority. I am Paul, the one who identifies with Onesimus. But even later, I want you to look in verses 12 and verses 17. In verse 12, this is what Paul says. 
I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. And then verse 17, he says, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. See, Paul is saying, Philemon, Onesimus, this one who you owned, this one whose value you undervalued, this one who you overlooked, this one who you thought was at the bottom, I want you to realize that he is my heart, that my feelings are with him, my empathy is with him, my identity is with him. And so however you would receive me if I were to come to you, however you would welcome me if I were to come to you, I want you to do the same thing for Onesimus. Paul is putting an equal sign between him and Onesimus, and he's saying, Philemon, the thing that I'm asking you to do to welcome him, I want you to do it just as if I were him. Because as I look at this, Paul says, Onesimus and I are equals. And so therefore, you must embrace him as an equal as well. See, Paul radically identifies not with Philemon, but with Onesimus in this relationship. And he says, Philemon, the thing to do here is to understand the worth, the value, the dignity that Onesimus has to challenge all of the defining labels that you've grown up hearing, that you have put on Onesimus, to re-challenge all of those in the name of Jesus. You see, what gives Paul the wisdom to do this? What gives Paul uh, the, the, the cunning to do this? You see, what Paul is doing, when Paul identifies with Onesimus, when he puts an equal sign between him and Onesimus and says, Philemon, receive Onesimus as you would receive me, what Paul is doing is he is simply walking in the footsteps of Jesus. He is walking out the life of Jesus in the context of a real relationship. Because here's the thing, of all of the defining categories that exist in our world, that divide us, that separate us, that keep us at arm's length from each, other, uh, from each other. All of these defining labels, no definition and distinction is greater than the one that exists between us and God. See, the greatest definition difference is what exists between God who is separate, who is distinct, who is, the Bible would say, holy, which means one and only, and all of us. That compared to the difference between us and God, our differences, our disagreements, our disunity looks petty compared to the difference between us and God. That this definition difference is enormous. And that in our own sin, in our brokenness, in our rebellion, in our choosing to do our own thing, it's like we put a wall up between us and God. We perpetuate the difference between us and God. And so, in a sense, God is now at the top of the spiritual ladder. And we are now at the bottom of the spiritual ladder. And here's the thing, there's no climbing up this spiritual ladder. There's no upward mobility on the spiritual ladder towards God. You are stuck in this position that you are in. But the way of Jesus, the thing that Jesus does for us is Jesus sets aside his rights at the top of the spiritual ladder and he identifies with us. He becomes human with us. And Paul would say, not only does he become human, he also humbles himself even to the point of death. That Jesus, in order to reconcile, to bring us back to God, Jesus humbles himself, challenges all the categories, and becomes obedient even to becoming a slave to the Roman Empire and being killed on our behalf. That Jesus radically identifies with us who are at this spiritual bottom of the ladder. And in doing so, he becomes the bridge through which we can be reconciled to God. 
And so Paul is looking at the life of Jesus. He's looking at the message of Jesus and says the way of Jesus who humbled himself, who identifies with us and then reconciles us to God, that way of Jesus calls us to be a reconciling kind of people, to be a kind of people who challenge the categories and the definitions in our world and in our day to say how can Philemon and Onesimus be brothers? That doesn't make sense in the way of the world, but in the way of Jesus it's the most logical thing you could imagine. Because the way of Jesus is to bridge the gap between people who could never exist together. You see, when we link arms with people who are different than us, we link arms with people that the world says we should keep it at arm's length. We are demonstrating that the way of Jesus is true. The way of Jesus is powerful. This is what Paul wants to see. Philemon and Onesimus not restored to the way that things were, where Philemon is the master and Onesimus is the slave, but but transformed into a community where Philemon and Onesimus are brothers, are family. See, here's the thing. Our unity in the midst of our diversity, our unity in the midst of our diversity demonstrates the power of Jesus. Because when we can link arms with people and we can experience unity together in the midst of all of our differences, in the midst of all the differences that the world said should keep us separate, we demonstrate that the love of Jesus, the power of Jesus is greater than any label that is placed on us outside of the walls of this community. That within the context of the people of Jesus, the only definition that matters, the only definition that holds weight is what Jesus says about you. If Jesus died for you, if Jesus uh, restored you and redeemed you, then you are my equal. We're not going to allow the definitions that assign worth to you outside of our community to count in this space. Because if Jesus can bridge the gap between us and God, then Jesus can bridge any gap between us and each other. You see, this is why as a church, We are committed to this idea of truly reflecting the diversity of our neighborhood. That within the context of our community, we want to actually look and sound like the neighborhood in all of its diversity, whether that's age diversity. And so we want to see representatives from old Goodyear Heights and new Goodyear Heights, whether that's the economic diversity of our neighborhood, that we want to see those who are at the top and those who are at the bottom united together in this space, that we want to see those who are white and those who are black and those who are Asian and those who are Latina and those who are everywhere in between coming together in the name of Jesus so that this place looks like this neighborhood and looks like the people that God has here. But here's the thing, that's going to require us to do some work. It's going to require us to do some hard things like Paul is asking Philemon to do here. And so if our unity in diversity displays the power of Jesus, it's going to require us to question and to deconstruct and to challenge some definitions. And so what does this mean for us to be this kind of community that, that doesn't hold to the categories of the world, but instead says we are in community because of Jesus? First, if you're here and you are not a Christian, I just want to invite you to consider something. Right? You may feel like uh, there's this gap between you and God. Right? Maybe you feel like God is out there. You think, maybe he'll pay attention to me. Maybe you're here because you think, last night was not great, and so I'm here to kind of make amends with God. Or you think that God could never want you. I want you to tell you that, tell you that God has already loved you in Jesus. He has already climbed down the spiritual ladder to you. He's not asking you to climb up to him. Jesus has already come to you. 
And he's simply asking you to trust him. Jesus says, I have come to you. I have demonstrated my love for you. And that if you trust me, if you receive my grace, which means that you don't have to earn a thing, you can experience a perfect and permanent relationship with God. One that's not based on uh, definitions or categories or behavior, but one that's based on who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for you. This is what it means to become a Christian, is to accept and trust in who Jesus is and believe that he has come to you at the bottom of the spiritual ladder and become this bridge for you to know who God is. That can happen today. But for those of us who follow Jesus, who say that Jesus is the center of our lives, Truly living this kind of thing out, moving from a community of categories to a community shaped by Jesus, is going to require that we challenge the definitions of worth and value that our world puts on us and puts on other people. It's going to require that we challenge that in our own thinking, in our own attitudes, in our own assumptions about people, to do the work to, to be aware of the ways in which these definitions have shaped our imaginations about people, shaped our attitudes towards people. Part of that is going to come as you are willing to learn more and learn from people who are different than you. This is why we're reading prayers from black Americans in our context, because we want to learn from people who are different than us. So it's going to require some personal responsibility to challenge these definitions, but it's also going to require us to lean towards those who are different than us. What I mean by that is this. When Paul is in this relationship, in this conversation with Philemon, Paul is not neutral. Paul is not neutral. He says, I am a prisoner. He identifies with Onesimus. And so becoming this kind of community means that as a community, we are going to lean towards those who are overlooked and undervalued. That we are going to prioritize in the context of our community those who are overlooked and undervalued outside of the walls of this community. Because that is what it looks like to pursue community like Jesus pursued us. This is why one of our values is value all people, which means that we stand up and speak up for those who are overlooked and undervalued in our city. That within the context of the community of people of Jesus, those definitions and those categories do not hold power in our relationships. That we challenge those things and question those things and look into the eyes of people who are different than us here and say, you matter to me. You have value because of who Jesus is. And so in our context, we're going to lift up and lean towards those who are otherwise overlooked and undervalued. Here's the thing. There's a really interesting factoid in church history, and that's this, that about 50 years after this letter was written, we have record of a bishop who would have been a pastor in a church not too far from where Philemon lived. And the name of that bishop is Onesimus. Now, we don't know for sure that it's the same Onesimus as this letter, but I like to imagine that it is. I like to dream that it is because what that tells us is that when Onesimus returned to Philemon, he was embraced as an equal. But even within the context of the church, the church actually lifted Onesimus up. They raised him up. They gave him opportunity. They gave him authority. They said, well, you are someone that we want to listen to. You are someone that we want to follow. You are someone that we want to lead you. And so the result is that Onesimus, who had no worth outside of the walls of the church, that the, the world said, you're worthless, you're a runaway slave, that within the context of the people of Jesus, Onesimus was lifted up and given a title of authority, given a title of honor, and said, you are someone that Jesus has called to lead us, and so we will follow you, even if the world says that's crazy. 
because this is the way of Jesus. And so if we're going to become that kind of true community, we have to lean towards people who are overlooked and undervalued. So that in our context, in our community, like this church, those who outside of the walls of this church are overlooked and undervalued are lifted up so that they might experience the reality that everyone is made in God's image with worth, value, and dignity. And that Jesus has defined people's worth for us when he died for us. This is what it's going to take for us to move from categories to communities. Let me pray for us. God, the greatest distinction, the greatest definition, difference that existed is the one that exists between us and you. But you and your love for us, you and your power, you bridge that gap by coming to us, by identifying with us, by dying for us. And that through Jesus, we can have a perfect, permanent relationship with you that reconciles us to you, but also reconciles us to each other. God, we confess that the definitions of our world that assign worth to people, they're so easy for us to buy into, so easy for us to believe, so easy for us to imagine. God, we confess these things. We acknowledge and we admit that more often than not, we look at people through those lenses rather than through the lens of Jesus. So God, in this space here, as we consider the call of Philemon to reconcile with Onesimus as an equal, would you even reveal in our own hearts, our own minds, our own imaginations, the ways in which we need to let go of some things, challenge some things, question some things, so that we might see people as being made in your image and reconciled to us because of Jesus. God, for the one who is here who thinks that the gap between them and God is so huge, there's no way that they can get to him. God, would you show them, would you reveal to their hearts the fact that Jesus crossed every boundary, every barrier, every definition statement in order to get to them. And that in dying for them, he makes it possible for them to be reconciled and restored to God. It's because of Jesus that we believe these things. It's because of Jesus that we hold to these things, even when it's hard, even when it's difficult. And this is the kind of community that you call us to be. And so would you make that possible? Give us the strength and the energy to do that. We pray this in the name of Jesus who reconciled us to God. Amen.